Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Whenever you are, welcome to Two Men with a Mic. Hello, hello. Hello, my dear friend Mike. How's it going there, sir? Going good. Having Teddy later. Oh, sweet. Is it the spaghetti <laughs> that Amber described last night? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny you, you brought that soul. up. Yeah, <laughs> that sounded tasty. Um, last night, Mitch's daughter was, um, she's a, a like a gourmet chef as a <laughs> hobby. And, and she I asked her what her favorite thing to uh, recipe to prepare was. And she said spaghetti. And then she started telling me about uh, her sauce and everything she puts into the sauce. And it was like, yum. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, yeah, I came home and we had all the, although she didn't get to make it because she's in school being a good student, Uh, freaking out about finals. She, she's crazy, man. She, she like actually studied all day today for one final. Wow. Yeah. That does happen Uh, in college though. Oh, does that? Is that where you're supposed to do that? I heard yeah. rumors. <laughs> there are different techniques for it, but I definitely put in whole days of study back in the day. My uh, my trick was um, to to do it like the day before the test. Um, just I I would uh, I would have all the notes and everything I was supposed to study, and then like I didn't study the whole semester, and then at the last second on the day before the test, I would spend like 24 to 48 hours just reading the notes and then rereading the notes and then rereading the notes and then going that way, which totally worked. Um, but you, you don't actually retain the information then. <laughs> so like you're, you're no, good for the test, but then it floats away. Pretty yeah, no, she's been studying like religiously going to tutors and, and writing herself tests and, and, all these different things. So we have to wish her good luck and blessings as she has her uh, math final tonight at eight o'clock, which is just crazy to me. That's right. It's a nighttime test. Yeah. So it's like, I wonder how that came about. They just need the room. That's when they could fit the class in. Wow. Are they a crowded university where, where she's at? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's uc davis i mean i don't know if they i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people there but yeah yeah i don't know i don't know how that works because her class was never at eight o'clock at night but her final is i don't remember any nighttime finals back in the day so that's kind of interesting to me yeah my trick for college was to not go trick dude that worked out great yeah it was awesome i mean you know my mom failed me and they kicked me out so it worked out well for me (laughs) (laughs) so tonight's show is pretty cool too we gotta have a great guest um his name is terry tucker and he's got a book out but besides his book he's also gone through a lot of uh trials and tribulations and and he wrote a book about it. So we're going to talk to him and hear what he has to say and, and just glean a bunch of positive stuff from him. Okay. Sounds good, dude. Is one of the trials and tribulations that he had to take a test at 8 p.m.? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to ask him. <laughs> let's, let's bring him on, man. Let's find out. <laughs> 
All right, let's do it. Give us an introduction of who is Terry Tucker. Sure. So uh, I'll give you the condensed version. I, uh, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. Uh, and I played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I have a brother who's six foot seven who was a pitcher <laughs> for the University of Notre Dame. Oh, that's cool. I have another brother who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. Wow. And then my dad was 6'5". So I sort of joked that, you know, if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are a wall. It was. In fact, you know, but hey, you know, our five foot eight inch mother was the boss. You know, it didn't matter. How big <laughs> her, her mom said that's that's the way it went. You know. uh, yeah, I think that's the way it usually goes. It, it, absolutely. So I yeah. graduated from the Citadel. I moved home to find a job. Um, I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And, you know, I look back now and realize how little I knew about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, I found that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Ooh. Oh, yeah. 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 So we got them out here. There you go. There you go. Uh, unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, on a, that uplifting note, uh, so <laughs> business-wise, like I said, started at Wendy's, then I became a hospital administrator, then made a huge pivot in my life and became a police officer and uh, worked undercover narcotics. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Yeah, I yeah. was... I was uh, very curious about that. And I know you mentioned, and I was going to save this for later, but since you mentioned it, I got to ask you a question because, sure. you know, we live in our own world and, um, you know, we've had this entire vision of us growing up. And so I guess you're here to burst our bubble, but <laughs> what are the odds of us, getting away from that police helicopter in reality um pretty slim especially if it had FLIR, which is forward looking infrared radar um so it, your, your body uh heat would have given you away i i, I mean i i hate well to this say was this. in the 80s the early it, 80s it probably still would have had flare. um eh, maybe not Sometimes we just don't want to catch people, you know. <laughs> don't tell us that. <laughs> so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story that kind of parallels that that story that, that you guys told. So I, I was working in the drug unit, and I worked uh, seven at night till three in the morning. Get off at three, drive home. We lived on a cul-de-sac, and you know, three o'clock in the morning, nobody's up. It's quiet, and so I used to sort of peer down with my flashlight down the side of our house because sometimes I'd catch a deer or two, you know, we had a wooded area behind us. And so I, 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 I did that this, this night, it was in the fall and I, I took my flashlight and I noticed we had a neighbor uh, that kind of had a house. We had one house that was kind of behind everybody else's and somebody had toilet papered the heck out of their trees. I mean, oh. and I'm sitting there, like, man, that's a nice job. They did a really good job. <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear a twig break. Oh. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding. I didn't walk in on the middle of this, did I? And so 
So I, I, I walked down the side of the house and sure enough, here are these three guys trying to, you know, basically dis- disappear into the tree line, you know, like, <laughs> okay, there's three of them. There's one of me. What do I do with them? You know, so I, I made him come out, you know, I showed him my badge. I made him come out and I laid him on the ground and it was dewy, you know, so it was all wet and stuff like that. I'm like, well, I only have two pairs of handcuffs and there's three of them. I, all right. <laughs> so I ended up making him get up and, and go to the house and ring the doorbell. Of course, I wake my neighbors up at three in the morning, you know, and they come down and I'm like, do you know these? And I acted like I was real professional and everything. You know? <laughs> like, do you know these guys? Oh, yeah, they go to school with our sons. Like, oh, well, they did a nice job on your trees. I said, you want me to arrest them, take them to jail? And they, their eyes got like as big as saucers, you know. Like, <laughs> jail? What do you mean jail? We're just toilet paper. And, you know, and I'm like, I can take you to jail if you want. And she was like, well, how about if they just clean everything up? I'm like, all right, that's fine. I said, I'll be back at the end of my shift to make sure everything's cleaned up. So I better not see one one ounce of toilet paper. I mean, these are like 20 foot tall evergreen trees. I mean, there's oh, no, my way God. They were gonna, you know, no way they were going to get to the top of those. And, and you know, my my neighbor laughed and smiled and I laughed and smiled and they went to about cleaning up all their mess. But yeah, I, <laughs> that was one of those times where I really didn't want to find anybody, but sometimes you just luck into it. So, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I, I think that most of our lives growing up and, you know, being dumb kids, we seem to run into that situation just out of the grace of God, I think, because, uh, that, seems to be what happened to us most of the time we never got away with anything we we just didn't get busted you know to the extent that it would get too bad the problem with that is is that you know juvenile crime is treated different than than adult crime so you know when we didn't want to we did not when i was a policeman in cincinnati ohio we did not want to arrest juveniles because juvenile court was all, was just a slap on the wrist and you had to be in court for hours and hours oh. and we worked nights so i mean if there was a way we couldn't arrest you we would definitely do that well now <laughs> you're bursting our bubble <laughs> that's good to me i don't think they were giving it a hundred percent every time we got in trouble mike probably not no <laughs> oh that's that's interesting that that kind of helps explain it yeah because like when we got busted buying the beer you know we we would we would have bums buy us beer. Right. And then when they would bust us, all they would do was make us pour it all out, which was very costly. Because yes. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget. We went, we went on a run to this house one night, my partner and I, when we were in uniform and, and this, it was a domestic and they were just, it really wasn't a, anything to arrest anybody about, you know, and the guy got real indignant with us. And he's like, you know, I'm a law abiding citizen. And I, I, I literally right next to his chair is this huge bag of marijuana. So <laughs> uh, that law-abiding citizen stuff, you know, this was before marijuana was, you know, this was back in the nineties when it was right. legal and that. And so I, I made him take it and pour it down the toilet. And, you know, I, I was telling the story at roll call the next day. And one of the bosses like, you know, you should have taken that marijuana and tagged it as evidence. I'm like, yeah, I probably should have, but, it, it was more fun to have him pour it down the toilet and watch all that money go with it. So, <laughs> You got to tell us one of your, like, undercover narc stories. Okay, so um, 
sometimes in that job you have to you have to act a little bit you know you kind of have to develop a different persona in that and i remember I, I was working the night shift and and my partner had come down to the unit i went i went to the drug unit first and then my partner came down and she was from west virginia and she had the the west virginia twang she was she, <laughs> she could do hillbilly real easy but she she had like a master's degree you know from marshall university and so she called me up and she's like hey i got these kids coming down from dayton and they they want to they want to sell mushrooms uh psychedelics psilocybin and and they and they want to party you know in cincinnati like will you buy from them i'm like well yeah what what's my cover and so so I posed as a professor of metallurgy for the <laughs> metal metallurgy. All I know is you put metal out in the you know in the rain and it rusts. That was my <laughs> <laughs> Who so comes I, up with those? I mean, like, is there someone whose job is to create these ideas, or do you guys just get to make them up? We just get to make them up. Oh, okay, that yeah. would be fun. <laughs> so we so we had uh, so I met these these kids in the park and. You know, he he jumps in. I give him two hundred bucks. He gives me the baggie of marijuana or of mushrooms, and he gets back in his car, and like eight marked cars, you know, just swoop in on him and arrest them all. And instead of partying and you know at the bars in Cincinnati, they were guests at the Hamilton County Justice Center that night. So oh, man. that was a that was an interesting story. And I'll give you one more. And this is this is kind of you guys will appreciate it. I don't know if your audience will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's only my family. That's right. There yeah, you go. <laughs> they're the only ones listening. <laughs> so well, one thing, we, we get a call, uh, you know, Cincinnati is located right across the Ohio River from Kentucky. And so we get a call from a Kentucky state trooper that he had just arrested this guy for a DUI. And it was a DUI with drugs. The, the guy was high on mushrooms, as a matter of fact. And he said after he Mirandized the guy, the, the guy admitted that he had more back at his apartment. And he gave us the address. So that was enough for us to get a search warrant and, and go to the guy's apartment in Cincinnati and, and get the, the, the mushrooms. We walk into this apartment. I mean, this guy must have had 40 snakes that Ooh, were all over his apartment. This guy slept in a cage because these were all constrictor snakes. Oh, my God. It was it was it was the one of the worst search warrants I ever did. It was like let's just find these stupid mushrooms. <laughs> well, that's one way to protect your drugs. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, you were a police officer and uh, you were a hostage negotiator. That had to be stressful. That's a lot of fun, but yes, it, it was, there, there were some things that were pretty stressful about it. Yes. Yeah, I'll bet. So after that, what happened? So my wife has always been the primary breadwinner. You know, I married up, she married down. Um, <laughs> so, um, so she lost her job in Cincinnati and wasn't able to find another one. So I had to leave the police department and we moved to Texas and I started my own school security consulting business. And uh, in the off season, well, or during basketball season, I coached basketball. But in the off season, I had my security consulting business, uh, and and that's you know it was it was something that I knew I could do. You know, there there were a lot of policemen that I worked with, not a lot, but enough of them that you know their whole identity was tied to their gun and their badge. And right. without the job, they felt they were nothing. 
And I, I never felt that way. I was like, you know what? I, I have a college degree. I have a master's degree. I've been to law school. I can do other stuff. You know, there are things I can do. So I started this, this consulting business and, and coached girls high school basketball. And then that's when I developed cancer in 2012. And I've been dealing with that for the last 10 years now. Wow. Are, are you in remission? I am not. Uh, I have tumors in my lungs. I had my left leg amputated in 2020. So I list to port a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad you guys got that. So. <laughs> and your wife's name is not Eileen, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> How, well, so what is the treatment? Uh, so right now I am on a clinical trial drug where I go for a week every day to the hospital and I get infused. I get basically pumped full of this drug that um, it's not like chemo, you know, where chemotherapy actually the, the drug itself kills the cancer. Really all the, this clinical trial does is um, the way cancer proliferates in the body is that it secretes uh, uh, an enzyme and it hides itself from, from your body's immune system. And what this drug does is it, it, it unmasks the cancer so that oh. your body can say, oh, hey, that's cancer. We should go kill that. And, and it's, it's having some success. It probably will not save my life, but the, the treatment is really, it's very hard. I, I mean, every day I, I throw up, I shake pretty violently. I have a headache, I have a fever. You know, I do that Monday through Friday and then I get two weeks off. And then I do it again after those two weeks. And I've been doing it for almost 22 cycles now. So quite a while. Wow. Oh, wow. Do you um, use medical marijuana? Does that? You know, I, I don't. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, I don't have anything against it, but there are, there are people that are still in the Ohio penitentiary that, that I put there because they were selling marijuana. So I, I have a real hard time using marijuana when I put people in jail for it. So yeah. I, I, I just, I don't do it. It's not something I've really needed at this point in time. So I, I, I don't use it though. No. That's an interesting take on that. That's, that's a, that's a hard one. It is. Yeah. It is. You don't want to be a hypocrite, you know? How did yeah. you realize that you have cancer? Say that again. How, how did you realize that you had cancer? So when I was coaching, high school basketball, I had a, had a callus that broke open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially I didn't think much of it. I mean, I, you're a coach, you're on your feet a lot, but after a couple of weeks of it, not healing, I made an appointment, went to see uh, a podiatrist, a foot doctor, a friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, you know, no dark spots, no blood, nothing, that gave either one of us concern, but fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, he sent it off to pathology to have it examined. And two weeks later, I get a call from him. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And that's what started, uh, started the journey. But, uh, and so that, and it's the same cancer that you had in your legs. 
it, it, it is. It's, it's the way my oncologist basically said it is that when you got cancer initially, wherever it is in your body, it was already there. It was just too small for us to see. And, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you have a scan and you find it. Well, the, the tumor has to be the size of a, of a garden pea, you know, so right. and that's, that's about a billion cells to, to have a tumor that size. And that it has to be that big in order for it to, to show up on a, on a CAT scan or an MRI. So mm -hmm. uh, it just, it just took a while for it to, to basically get big enough for them to, to find it. Wow. But, and I didn't, I just don't know anything about it. I, I, it, it can go on for like a decade, like what you've been experiencing. Is that typical? Uh, no, I, I probably should have been dead about five years ago. Um, but I'm, I think I'm too stubborn right now. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I'd been eight years into it when I had my, my foot amputated. And what, when I, after I was treated at, at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, my doctor put me on a drug called interferon, which was a, a weekly injection. And, and the side effects of interferon for me were that I had severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for five years. So imagine oh, man. having the flu every week for five years. Ah. And that was not a cure. That was just a we're going to try to kick the can down the road until there are more therapies available. Uh, that ended in 2017 when I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which usually is not compatible with being alive. But fortunately, I was at a level one trauma center uh, and they were able to stabilize me before they sent me to the emergency or to the intensive care unit. And that was just a, a, a reaction to the toxicity of all those years, five years of interferon. And so I had to stop the drug in 2017 and the cancer came back almost immediately in the exact same area on my foot where it had been initially found. That in 2018, I had my left foot amputated. And then 2019 worked its way up my shin for two more surgeries. And then 2020, I had an undiagnosed tumor kind of, you know, at the, at the end of my, uh, kind of my ankle area, I guess, that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to, to have my left leg amputated. I mean, my wife literally dropped me off at the hospital. I wasn't allowed to have anybody with me. Uh, my doctor had to get special permission to perform the surgery. And, and I was the only surgery scheduled for that day. So it was, uh, wow. it was a pretty daunting experience. Wow. I'm sorry. So, so you go through all that, which I mean is freaking unbelievable, and when and then you write a book. <laughs> is that yeah? Is that how it goes? You just do all that, yeah. and you just sit down and write a book. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the, during the time that, uh, so I, I had my leg amputated in April of 2020, and I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs in June of 2020. So during that roughly three-month period that I was healing, um, I sat down at the computer every day, and I had already uh, sent a young man who'd reached out to me on social media and asked me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I, I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are. They're very important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with them. So I took some time and I 
eventually had these 10 principles and I sent them to him. And so I stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during that three month period where I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories underneath the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, I just, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, I've got this cancer. Um, they take my leg. And then the last thing that comes to my mind is I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah, it, does, it doesn't seem to go. I mean, you figure you sit around and watch Netflix, you know, and eat ice cream and stuff, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was something that people were suggesting that I do. And I, I was really kind of, uh, sort of poo-pooing it. It's like, you know, I'm not a writer. I've never written a book, you know, and, but enough people, you know, mentioned it that I was like, well, let, let me see if I can take a crack at this. And, you know, I did. And, and then I, you know, I've got this manuscript and it's like, well, is it any good? You know, I mean, you know, some people write books about walking their dog or taking the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, is this anything anybody's going to want to read? And so I, I, I gave it to, to a couple of friends of ours, uh, who she's a former prosecutor. She's a lawyer. She's a former prosecutor and he's a former Navy SEAL. And I said, would you guys mind reading this and tell me what you think? And they were like, yeah, you should try to get it published. So that was a, that was another interesting story. Uh, my publishing uh, company is, is a husband and wife team. And, and, and the husband initially was an undercover narcotics investigator oh. and mm. was also a police chief in Louisiana. And one day, one of his buddies out in California said, hey, would you mind coming out here and uh, doing a presentation to authors who want to understand police tactics and incorporate them in their books so that they understand, you know, that looks right. like what they're talking about. And he's like, yeah, sure. If we took to California, why not? You know, so so he goes out there and do that, does this. And he ends up meeting his wife, who is a best selling fiction author. She's she's written like, I don't know, 35, 40 books that, that are bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. They end up getting married. He gets out of law enforcement and they start this not for profit publishing company. And I got hooked up with him and, and their company published my book. So, so how, how do people find your book and what's the name of it again? The book is called Sustainable Excellence, The 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it's available anywhere you can get a book online, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, anywhere you can find a book online, you can get Sustainable Excellence. Okay. And, and what's just out of curiosity, what's the name of that publishing company? Because Mike and I are going to write our memoirs. There you, <laughs> there you go. It's called Five Stones Press. That was Five Stones Press? Five Stones Press. Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's done fairly well. I, I, I get royalty checks off of it. Uh, it's sold all over the world. So. Oh, that's it, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I, 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 you know, I always wish it would sell more. But, you know, hey, I, I'm happy. Well, Maybe it will now because uh, we now have a following in India. So not only do we have listeners in Mexico and Australia, but we've actually got listeners in India. So, you know, if you start getting some book sales in India, you know. <laughs> I don't know who to thank for that. <laughs> or what, what are the, the concepts in it? Like the, the principles? Uh, yeah, principles. Um, 
so there, there are 10 of them. And I, I basically, you know, it's always fun for me as an author to, you know, to kind of listen when people read it. And they, you know, it's always a great conversation starter because, you know, there's always one principle and the principles are not in any particular order. Number one isn't any more important than number seven or anything like that. But there's always one principle that, you know, people are like, hey, you know, number five really resonated with me or, you know, number seven really resonated. And I mean, I wrote all 10 of them and, and I feel the same way because, you know, there's one that really sticks out with me. And it does, I think, because I've done this before. So each principle is a chapter. And the chapter, the one that really gets me is most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. I mean, how many times have I done that? I've done that a lot in my life. You know, I wanted to do this, but ooh, wait a minute. You know, that kind of scares me. Or what if I fail? What are people going to say about me? That's that's thinking with your fears and insecurities and not thinking with your mind. So it's it's chapters like that. You know, and some there's a, a chapter about listening. Um, you know, but like, well, you know, of course we all listen. What, 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 that's a stupid chapter. Why did you put that in there? You know, <laughs> but it, it's, it's the things that I learned when I was a negotiator, you know, the importance of, of silence, you know, and, and we would ask an open-ended question to somebody we were negotiating with and we wanted them to, to bleed off a lot of that emotional energy because we all make better decisions when we use our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. And so we would get the person to talk. And then, you know, after a while, they'd be quiet. And then we wouldn't say anything. That reminds me, I want a limo to take me to the airport. And I want a plane fueled up and two pilots to fly me to an undesignated location immediately. Yeah, <laughs> ain't, ain't gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, He'll have was, his people I, I, call I your people. A funny story. I, I, one night I was, I, I was actually working in uniform i was a sergeant in a different district and district two had a barricaded subject it was a a, a man who had barricaded himself in his house with his wife and he had a gun and i because i was in a marked unit i was able to get there pretty quickly and so i i talked to the to the beat guys i'm like what's the deal and they're like well this guy's drunk he's taking his wife hostage i said do you have him on the phone he's like yeah we're talking to him right now so I, I took over and started talking to him. And usually you don't ask right away about solutions like coming out or putting the gun down or something like that. But this guy, it just seemed like the right thing to do. So I said to him after about 10, 15 minutes on the phone, so what would it take for you to come out? He's like, give me a beer. <laughs> Where to go? Where to go? That's exactly what he said. I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would put the gun down, let your wife come out? And that you would come out? He said, do I have your word that I could drink it? I said, absolutely. So I gave one of the, the beat guys five bucks and said, get out of the store and buy a beer. The tactical guys put it on the front porch. I called him back. I said, hey, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out and you come out. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. He gets handcuffed. We let him drink his beer and off to jail he went. Wow. <laughs> Do you ever think about writing like police fiction since you know so much about it? You know, I, I've thought about it. Um, I, I've, I've got some pretty good stories. I, I just, you know, they're, they're special to me. I mean, and there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dark parts, you know, that things that you saw that you didn't want to see and people shouldn't see and things like that, you know, dead kids and, and things like that. And so I, I guess, 
I guess I just kind of want to hang on to those just for myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was reading the, the, the first uh, introduction part of your book and, and you had something here and I actually wrote it down. So, um, you know, you should take some pride in that because the fact that I actually wrote something down, um, <laughs> my mom couldn't even get me to do that. And, <laughs> yeah, she, I failed her call. She had, she was a college professor and I failed her class. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, I was just curious what this meant to you. Um, I really like this, Mike. You'll probably like this too, but I'm just, you know, cutting off from the middle of it kind of. But you put on here, um, to Aristotle, excellence was defined by the person and the conditions under which it was viewed. So excellence, like beauty, tends to be in the eyes of the beholder. Ah. Yeah. yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, it is kind of funny because people will ask me, you know, you wrote this book called Sustainable Excellence. Well, what does excellence mean? And, and I, my answer is usually like, I, I don't know. And they're like, well, you wrote the book. What do you mean you don't know? And I'm like, well, and, and then I quote that and say, you know, you, you and I may look at the same thing. We may look at the same company. We may look at the same athlete. You know, we may look at the same person in, in some role. And you may say that person is excellent. I may say, yeah, they're good, but I don't think they're excellent. So it's really, it's, it's a very subjective kind of, of thing. And, and the book is, you know, it's like, what, what happens in life? You know, you go through, you work hard you know, you grind it out and then you, you reach the pinnacle of whatever you, you are trying to do, you know, whether it's athletics, whether it's business, whether it's academic, whatever it is. And then what do you do? You sort of sit back and you kind of, you know, put your feet up on the desk, pat yourself on the back, you know, pour yourself a drink, man, look at me, look what I did. And then six months or a year from now, boom, somebody passes you up. You're like, wait a minute. I did everything. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I did yep. all this stuff. I, you know, why, why aren't I still excellent? And, and that's where the sustainable part of it is. You know, in, in order to sustain excellence, you can't just say, okay, I've made it, I've arrived, and I'm just going to sit here. You have to constantly innovate. You have to constantly, you know, change the way you do business. You have to constantly work smarter and things like that. But that's what people don't get. They think, you know, once I get to that point, then I'm good. And, and it's, and I'm going to be like that for the rest of my life. Well, yeah, you are, but then somebody else is going to work harder and surpass you. And then you're going to be like, Whoa, wait a minute. So, so it was more than just, let me talk about excellence. Let me talk about how you can get excellent. And then once you get there, you can sustain it. Yeah, that um, that's a hundred percent accurate. You know, um, at least in my humble opinion, but uh, you know, my uh, daughter, uh, well, I have three daughters, but one of them, my uh, youngest, uh, she she struggles with she's a type one diabetic. And um, so she's always been limited physically on what she can do, but she still was an athlete. And, you know, she would get on herself about, um, you know, just she couldn't keep up with the kids that are 100 percent healthy. I mean, it's just the reality of it. Right. And, uh, you know, she would get down on herself and, you know, I'd, I'd always, you know, let her go that that, you know, if any of them were in your situation, would they be as good as you? And, you know, you have to look at it from like you're saying, from your eyes of the person, you know, each one of us is different and what we've accomplished. 
you know, based in our individual situation, you know, she was working harder than anyone else. She still made varsity, you know, and, and that, you know, was excellent. So, you know, I, that, that's why that, when I read that, I, that just really kind of hit home with me. Yeah. It's, you know, so many people in life, you know, look at their lives. Oh, I'm a failure on this because they start comparing themselves to other people, you know, and, and, and that's, people do it all the time. And that's where you get into trouble. You're, you're not like me. I'm not like you, you know, it, it's, we're different people. We have unique gifts and talents and, but we want to, you know, I want to be like him or I want to be like her. And if I'm not, then I'm a failure. It's like, no, you know, did, are you better today than you were yesterday? And if you are, then that's all you need to worry about. You know, and, and I always tell people, you know, it's kind of the old joke, you know, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? You know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just, you know, it's the same principle of being, you know, I, I want, I've got to get better at whatever it is. I got to get better at sales. I got to, you know, be a better student, a better athlete, whatever it is. And, and you, you kind of sit back and you're like, well, that's, that's a huge thing to undertake. But if you break that down, sort of like, you know, one bite at a time eating the elephant, what if you got 1% better every day? You know, at the yeah. end of 30 days, at the end of a month, you're 30% better. At the end of two months, you're 60% better. But, you know, people get so hung up on, oh, I've got to be great at whatever. And then it's like, well, I, you know, I just can't do that overnight. Well, there's, there's no such thing as an overnight success. I don't care who they are. You know, I mean, there's right. people fail and fail and fail. And then nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to make a mistake. One of the chapters actually in my book is about the importance of failure, especially when you're young. You know, get out there, make mistakes. Like I said, especially when you're young. You that was our to, motto. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were shooting for. Yeah. <laughs> we thought we were just failing, but no, we got a reason. That's right. Yeah. There's science behind that. <laughs> what what which one of the principles resonates with you personally the most? I, I, I think the one that we talked about before about, you know, thinking with your fears and their insecurities. Cause I've done that. I've done it a lot, not a lot, but I've done it enough in my life that it was like, that's why I put it in there. It's like, look, I've made this mistake. Don't, you know, you reader don't, don't make that mistake. Um, you know, th that's one big one that resonates with me. The last one, the last chapter, uh, chapter 10 is, is about the importance of love. And I remember when I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at UCLA by the name of John Wooden. You guys. Yep. Yeah. And I was a I was a wooden disciple. I loved John Wooden, you know, I read everything I could about the guy and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it was I was I was listening to an interview he was given one day and, and literally I was taking notes during the interview. And and the reporter asked him, you know, what's the most important thing that, that you want to teach your kids? What's the most important thing that you want your kids to take away from this? And I'm literally on the edge of my seat. You know, I'm like, all right, come on, coach, give me some yeah, here it comes. Yeah, here I'm, I'm ready. And he's like, he's like, I, I would say that that I want them to take away the importance of love. You know, love each other, love what you do for a living, love your family, love you know. And I'm like, no, 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 come on. You know, I'm looking for <laughs> no, I want something good. And and but I mean, here's this you know unbelievably great coach, and he's talking about the importance of love. And I I I you know I, I always remembered that. I mean, I was probably in seventh grade or something when that happened. 
and I, I, I've always remembered that the importance of love in our lives. We have to love what we do and we have to love ourselves and love the people around us. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you go on speaking tours? Well, I, I did. One of my, one of my really brilliant um, business decisions was to start a motivational speaking business in 2019. So probably not the smartest thing I ever did in my life with COVID. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I mean, uh, most of what I is is podcasts now because so many people, you know, shut down during COVID. And, you know, even virtual uh, presentations or talks were, were difficult. So I literally started doing podcasts. And that's, I, you know, I remember the first time somebody contacted me. You know, I, I had no idea what it was. And. I think how horrible I was when I first started and how I was choppy and I didn't have good stories and things like that. And, and now I've probably been a guest well over 400 podcasts around. Whoa. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. So it's, it's been, and I've not had a bad experience yet, except for this one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to ask, but we're your favorite, right? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you, you, you and, uh, there's there's two guys two guys that I did a podcast. It's funny how you know life kind of parallels in certain. These two guys out of uh, Indiana, just outside of Chicago, and they're, and they're it, it, it's uh, what's a podcast? Something like two bald bros or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I was just like you guys. We were laughing at time, and it was you know it was just it was fun to do. And so yeah, you guys are you guys are right up the top you know certainly five okay oh, there you go <laughs> <laughs> he says that to everybody though all 400 yeah. <laughs> well, you should go back and listen to all 400 and see if i do so <laughs> so i was curious too uh mike and i you know have a love for music and stuff like that so um if your life are however you want to look at it what would be the uh um, Terry Tucker song if you had to pick a song because we'll make that the song of our episode I, I would it, it's probably a song that you guys have never ever heard of uh, it, it's from it's from a musical that got turned into a movie that's based on a book called uh, I don't know if you guys ever read uh, Cyrano de Bergerac um, mm. uh, so it, it, the 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 movie and the player called man of la mancha and and the mm-hmm. song is called the impossible dream ah. i know that song because my mom loves that there, yeah actually go. i, I saw like your it. mom already <laughs> <laughs> i saw that performed actually man of la mancha did you okay yeah that's a All good right. one that's a good song yeah well that'll be the song of the episode i like it <laughs> so keeping in in um style with that do you have any favorite movies yeah I have, a, I have a lot of favorite movies i mean i i used to love to watch movies you know all the time i mean i'm a guy so i, I like to you know if it blows up or people get <laughs> that's us you know, that, that's you know emmy award-winning movie um nice. i i guess you know it's fun you want to see a grown man cry i will cry every single time at the, at the end of the movie field of dreams yeah. Oh, yeah. Cry, cry like a baby for that. Uh, Hoosiers. Yeah. Uh, with Gene Hackman, it, the 
the interesting thing about Hoosiers is when I lived in Cincinnati, the Hoosiers, the Hickory is actually the real, the real school is called Milan, M-I-L-A-N, Indiana. And it was about three hours from Cincinnati and uh, came down from Chicago one day and we, and we went over there and we went into the school and, and it's a brand new school now, but they still have part of the court that's in a, <laughs> like a trophy yeah. case on the wall. And the, the, you know, the, it's, it's a farm town. It's like, you know, railroad tracks run through it. It's got grain elevators, you know, and we were like, okay, that's where this guy lived. And that's where this guy lived. And we're going, I'm, I'm not, you know, by some farmer, like, <laughs> what the heck are you doing? Why are you stopping in front of my house? But there was a, there was like an antique store in downtown. And I mean, it, 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 only in, you know, small town, Indiana kind of thing. So we go there and it's like, oh, it's, it's closed. You know, and, and that was there was kind of the the Hoosiers Museum in this in this antique store. And we really wanted to see it. And we're like, oh, it's closed. And it says, well, if you need assistance, call this number. So we like, yeah, I'll be right down. She comes from her house. <laughs> and, <in>, you know, <laughs> I mean, we bought some. I love small towns. And, you know, <laughs> it, it was just it was cool to be like, OK, this is where this is the real Hoosiers. This. At least the people that really lived it, that really, you know, this was the community and, you know, and all that stuff. So that was, that, that's a huge one for me. I mean, my, my brother is a Notre Dame graduate. So Rudy, you know, is another, right. Another good one and stuff like that. Uh, you know, band of brothers, those, you know. That yeah. Kind of- yeah. That, I, that, that's a, that's a, that's a nice, violent, exciting action. Pack. <laughs> what What is band of brothers? It's a uh, World War Two, but it's like a, a series. It's not a movie. It's a series. Uh, so it, it goes on, but you know, it's definitely got a lot of uh, blood and gore and and that sort of stuff. I think it was a. Is that was that a Spielberg? Yeah. Or, yeah. It was a. You know, they follow a, a company, Easy Company. You know, paratrooper. You know, basically from the time they they're in you know boot camp through jump school through you know they jumped into to i think holland before uh the normandy and stuff like that and and everything they went through and you know the guys that died the guys that were lost arms lost legs just just i mean it's nobody nobody wins kind of you know in war kind of like divorce you know nobody wins yeah oh yeah i'm an expert at that i got two purple hearts do you (laughs) (laughs) my condolences (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I scored on the third one, so I'm all good. Yeah, Dude. third time's the charm, right? Yeah. All right. So, what kind of tree do you think you are? I'd probably be a sequoia. <laughs> Actually, I was hoping to get a laugh for that. Barbara Walters was criticized heavily because I forgot she asked someone in an interview, like, "Well, what kind of tree would you like to be?" <laughs> <laughs> Just a little the here. Yeah, you know, it's like, no, nah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go big, you know, let's go, let's go, yeah, the yeah. Court, yeah, you know, so yeah, sequoias are awesome, yeah, yeah, those things are huge, <laughs> exactly. Always been a big fan of westerns growing up, you know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up, and you guys aren't even gonna remember this, um, maybe you will, uh, you know, Gunsmoke and Bonanza, and, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah my favorite was Wild those. Wild West. You know, oh yeah, we love that show. Artemis yeah. and Jim. Yeah, but yeah, love that. And not 
movie Tombstone came out. You guys probably. Oh, oh it's yeah. a great movie. There you go. Yep. I've seen. Who's your Huckleberry? There you go. It <laughs> yeah. stars uh, Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and yep. Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, for, for your audience who doesn't know this, uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters for the movie. And uh, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And yep. Wyatt Earp, these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from my house. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. He has no money, prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc. And in this almost last scene of the movie, and Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair. (laughs) (laughs) But she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's life, and get on with living yours. I mean, you guys, you know, Mitch and Mike, you guys know people out there that are just sort of hanging back. And they're like, you know what, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. When that happens, I'll have a successful life. When this occurs, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'll leave you with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use unique gifts and talents and live that reason because if you do at the end of your life i'm going to promise you two things number one you're going to be a whole lot happier and number two you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart two men with the mic was recorded live in front of clothes on a hanger at clothes on a hanger studios california you can reach out to them on instagram at the number two men with a mic 